0: The first Bible reading is from 2 Samuel, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. David anointed king of all Israel. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and flesh. For some time, while Saul was king over us, it were you who led out Israel and brought it in. The Lord said to you, It is you who shall be shepherd of my people Israel, you who shall be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he began his reign, and he reigned forty years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And now, chapter 6, starting at verse 1. David brings the ark to Jerusalem. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart from the Ark and Ahab went in front of ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. The second reading is Psalm 150. Praise for God's surpassing greatness. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his surpassing greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
1: Hello.
2: How are you? It's lovely to be here. I've travelled up. I didn't travel up from Plymouth uh, this morning. I actually it has been a long way to come.
0: Um, I, uh, I'm actually
2: originally from Surrey, so I've come up with my mum's this morning. So, you know, ooh, so thank you for letting me have a night with my mum. It's very kind of you. Your mum's very pleased to have me. Um, so, earlier this year, we had... Oh, okay, I'll start by praying. And then I'll, Dear Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditations of my spirit be acceptable to you, Lord Christ. Amen. i to tell you a little bit about Devil as I go
1: minister in about
2: 11 years, to to 12. but I thought I'd just start by obviously touching on the passage. For the next but for, for first of all, the first time in 70 years, we witnessed something that most of us have never experienced, which of course is the coronation of a king, wasn't it? First time most of us have ever experienced that. Like most families. We thought it would be good, mostly for my daughter's sake, to experience this little bit of history. For us, it was on TV. And actually, after a while of me shouting for the fourth time, not my king, my wife finally persuaded me to stop being an idiot and grow up. Um, I realised that it is a moment of history. And as a history graduate, before my first degree was in history, uh, I realized that we were seeing a piece of history, and I grew up, I, when I grew up studying history, I, I went to a, uh, a, a very traditional um, uh, school, and my history teacher decided you know, the, the best way to teach us was to get us to learn all the names and the dates of the kings, and so a like, very, very formal way of learning history. Uh, and I can honestly tell you that I still don't know the names and the dates of all the kings. It was a complete waste of time. But actually, as, as I moved on to the school, we kind of actually got to actually really study history. Um, you know, and by the time you get to GCSE and A levels, it was far more interesting to me. Uh, and my history teacher, incidentally, my history teacher at GCSEs was a, a, a Reverend Ian, Dr. Ian Stackhouse, who is now the minister of Guildford Baptist Church, but he was my history teacher. He taught me history at GCSE level. but uh, I came to love history, and I, in, in the end, did a degree in history. Uh, but history, uh, even when I was doing A levels and degree level, there were certain aspects of history that we didn't learn or we didn't get taught. Okay, so there's a moment of history in this area This week, celebrating 1814. Does anyone know what happened in Tottenham Court Road in 1814 this week? It's the great British beer flood, great London beer flood. Uh, A a 22-gallon barrel exploded in in a brewery in Tottenham Court Road, and the flood drift, washed down into the slum of St. Giles, killing, this is really bad, killing eight people. Eight people died in the great London beer flood of 1814, which would have happened somewhere around it. Do you, any, did anyone know that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Hillsong, that's a flood coming out there, isn't it? Flood of the Spirit. Um, anyway, so yes, so the great London beer flood of 1814. Um, and I, I, I knew of that for a while back. but well, I was reminded of that this week when I was doing, I read a book called The History here. And it's just a little bit of facts of something that happened each day. And, uh, and this was this one that came up this week. I was like, this is really interesting because I'm going to be here this week. So it's great to learn all this social history, different aspects of society. and When I was a student, when I did, you know, history at A-level, we basically just studied, I, I think I studied World War II at GCSE, A-level and degree level. I got so bored with it. I just... couldn't But actually, over the last years, I've discovered fast more. When I did a theology degree at Bristol Baptist, um, I got really interested, particularly in early Baptist history, um, particularly sort of around the time of, uh, of, of Thomas Helwys. Uh, John Smith. And that was really interesting to me. And that was one of the things that really fascinated me. But more recently, I've discovered you know, the, the history of, of the Celtic, British Celtic tradition. You know, looking at the, the early church, just after the Romans left the, the Britain, and there was a vacuum. Uh, and then there's a period up to where the Vikings came, particularly so people, saints you might have heard of Ninian, Patrick, Bridget, Columba, Aidan, Hilda. And what these interest, why this interests me, is because although you do get through kings thrown in, if you read Bede's History of the Ecclesiastical People, which I've done for the second time this I'm punishing myself. But basically, you learn, you do learn about kings, but you also learn about the ordinary stories of ordinary people, and in some ways, that's far more interesting. But anyway, so the passage we get the coronation of a king, king. David, a man chosen by God despite his obvious failings. He's a man of grace because he's given a role despite the failings that he has as a human being. A man who often is actually more known for his mistakes than his triumphs. But in fact, actually, if you read the history of of the Israelites to that people, they were very successful period of his right history under David. But often we read his personal failings or the issues more as, he, as, he, as, his, as his reign ends, the more issues around succession that tend to mar his story. David here is anointed the king of all Israel. He'd already been the king of Judah for seven years by that time. But because of the failure of Saul, yeah, they, they, they were looking for someone different. And both as a follower of God and consequently as a leader of the nation, David is chosen. And once he's chosen, the gap between these two passages, 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 6, something important happens. He, He captures Jerusalem. Of course, we all know of the history and the story of Jerusalem. He captures Jerusalem and makes that his capital. And then he goes and defeats the Philistines. And brings back the Ark of the Covenant, which had been lost by Saul. And brings it back into the city of Jerusalem. And this, of course, is the cause of their great celebration. And the variety of instruments that are played and sung and celebrated. As the Ark returns back into Israelite hands, but also into the city of Jerusalem. And it symbolizes the favor of God being restored to the nation. And interestingly, David is anointed because he is a shepherd. He is seen as a shepherd, which of course harks back to the early parts of the stories of when we meet David, who is among the sheep when Samuel arrives, but also harks back to the other rulers of Israelite history, Abraham, who was, of course, a shepherd. Moses, who became a shepherd. And later in Israelite history, when you get to Ezekiel, the image of the bad shepherd is a sign of those who are failing to rule the nation correctly. It's an image of poor leadership. While Jesus, of course, the Messiah, the chosen one, born into the line of David, is described himself in John as the good shepherd, Theologian Paul Gooder argues that the word we translate good, kalos, is difficult. It can mean beautiful, noble, honorable, and ideal, and they would be far better. She actually uses it in her translation as noble, being prepared to give your life or something. And the nobility, the idea of being noble, which, of course, symbolizes what he would do as the good shepherd. The, he would give his life. And, of course, shepherd is the word we we glean, the word pastor, pastoral, the idea that, you know, your leads of church, pastors, are shepherds of people. And I find it interesting when you see secular institutions use pastoral care, because actually they are harking back to this idea of a godly person who is in charge, someone who is shepherding people. Uh, but also, within this story, we don't just get a glimpse of a king. We get a glimpse of ordinary folks, Abadad, no, that. sorry, sons, Uzzah and Ahayog. Uzzah would, of course, lose his life just a few verses later for the audacity of trying to stop the ark falling on the floor. As a young Christian, one of the, one of the, I, was, I wasn't brought up in a Christian family. I was brought up, I became a Christian in my teens. And I, I remember going to church once and I heard this story of Isaiah. And, of course, they, they told it, a example, that God is holy and God's holiness couldn't be touched by anyone. And, but I was always deeply troubled. And I still am a little bit troubled by the story. You know, there he is trying to protect it, falling from the floor. And and David does get angry with God. And in some ways, you can share God's anger when you see something that is distinctly unfair. And the Bible writer clearly understands this event as part of God's anger. That's the way they understand it for this irreverence, which is the way it's sometimes translated. But it's one of these moments in Scripture where it leaves me with far more questions than answers. It's more troubling than I want it to be. But what we're seeing is this picture of ordinary people with ordinary lives, doing ordinary things, you know, just celebrating. You know, as we've done with this choir, celebrating, singing, you know, songs of praise with a piano, with the guitar, songs of praise to God. Here we are, 3,000 years later, doing the same thing, coming together to sing songs of praise, to play instruments, and to rejoice in the glory of God and what he's doing. So, as I said, one of my interests is history. And history of ordinary people. And it was my history of ordinary people that sought me to read out about home mission. So, you must know about home mission. You give it to, you, know, you, you will see in your financial report there'll be a pot of money that goes to home mission. Um, all of us, all churches should be paying a little bit towards it. That's the intention. of uh, of being part of the Baptist family. But I didn't know. I remember reading, when I was at college, I remember reading a little bit about two Plymouth ministers who were part of the story. When I got to Plymouth, I decided to discover a little bit more, to dig into the story. because I was now in a home mission church, and I wanted to know a little bit more about the story. And what I didn't realise was how close the story was. Because of those two ministers, one of them was a guy called Isaiah Burt. What well, I means nothing to you. But he actually existed in a church that is around the back of my house. The church used to exist. I'll tell you why it used to. But actually, I can see it from my daughter's bedroom. And it's now a place where the, uh, the social housing put their bins. <laughs> this moment of, of history, this... Pembroke Street Baptist Church, where Isaiah Burt, who was one of the two people, key people, who influenced the idea of Baptist Home Mission, this building is now where they put the bins. The church, Pembroke Street Baptist Church, was one of four Baptist churches that existed in Devonport before World War II. Now, some of you know, maybe, that, that Plymouth was subjected to more bombs than Coventry. More bombs landed in Devonport than anywhere else in Plymouth. So by the end of World War II, Devonport was rubble. I've got pictures of my road. and It's basically just a big pile of rubble and four kids playing on it. And then it was rebuilt after the war. And by the end of it, though, of those four Baptist churches, do you know how many existed? None. They were all bombed out, and three of them, one had moved previously just before the war, but the other three were all given buildings outside of Devonport. So by the end of the 1950s, Devonport had not just no Baptist church, but actually the three Anglican parishes got reduced to one, and all of the Methodist churches were bombed out too. In fact, we had a Methodist church at the end of my road where John Wesley would preach before he would get the the ferry... From Plymouth to Cornwall, you preach there, and then he'd go into Cornwall. And of course, you know, some of you know the story of Cornwall is very influenced by John Wesley's missionary preaching. So he would preach in Plymouth at the end of my road and then cross the, the river, River Tamar, into Cornwall. And there he would start his mission. And some say that actually one of, the, one of the main influences of in Cornwall being as it is was John Wesley's preaching. So history has been hard on Devonport. And there was no Baptist church in Devonport until 1998, when my predecessor, Nathan Fisher, with the support of Mutley Baptist Church, which you may have heard of, planted what is now, wasn't then, it was called Mount Wise Baptist Church then, is now Devonport Community Baptist Church. But the difference was, before the war, Devonport was a prosperous area. We had the dockyard on our doorstep dockyard that was really important. You know, from from, uh, from Napoleonic Wars onwards, basically it was a really financially prosperous area. But three things happened to destroy that. First of all, the war. Uh, and what happened was that, that Devonport was forgotten about. Uh, and, and Plymouth City Council spent all its money revamping the city centre, which is now, by the way, trashed. Um, that's a different matter. But they spent all their money revamping a city centre, and they actually ran out of money. And they realised they hadn't built any houses. <laughs> and so they had to build these houses. What they built was slum housing, basically. By the, within 20 years, it was not worth, not fit for living in. And it was all in Devonport. Uh, another happened. The Royal Navy came along, and they basically built a wall through Devonport. They cut off most of Devonport. They actually, behind the wall, you could see the old Marks and Spencers and the Woolworths and all the old shops and the banks. But you couldn't access it because the Royal Navy had cut it in two. Cut Devonport in two. It was war, and what they did was they just stored stuff in it during the Cold War. All these where people houses were, where people used to live. They could just see where it was, but they couldn't access it. And then finally, the dockyard went from its heyday of employing 25,000 people, and and outside the dockyard used to be Albert Road, and Albert Road there was literally just a series of pubs. It was just a, it was like a road of pubs. But people would leave the dockyard. You see this picture of people leaving the dockyard, 25,000 workers, leaving the dockyard, streaming down Albert Road and just going into the pubs. It went from 25,000 people to 5,000 people. And what you lost wasn't just you know, like the, the, the amount of jobs, but you lost the rope makers. You lost the, the, the cleaners, the, the, the ordinary people. I've got, two, I've got a person in my church who works in the dockyard. He's a nuclear physicist. He's got an MSc in nuclear physics. But the ordinary jobs, the, the jobs that most people leaving school at 15, later 16 would have gone on to do, they disappeared. And so what you got was a mixture. The social housing had come in. The housing stock was different. The, the area was divided geographically by the Royal Navy. And the jobs that were there had gone. So by the time... The church came into being in 1998. The area was incredibly different. Okay, so here we go. So the Church Urban Fund. What is the Church Urban Fund? The, they've got, there were 12,000 Church of England parishes in England. 12,000, just over 12,000. You're in the parish of St. Giles in the Forest. You probably know that. Do you know what number you're at in this area? Anyone know? I've got a PowerPoint. I've got a PowerPoint. Sorry. Is that up? Is that around? So, so yeah. So you're here. Four, five, two, six. Do you know what the bottom one is? The bottom one's Devonport. Hundred and six. Basically, you're pretty. You're in. You're in the in the area of deprivation, but we're down there. 106. There are only 105 more parishes in the UK that are more deprived than Devonport, which makes us in the bottom 1% of most deprived wards in the entire, in England. Things have got better in the last few years. Life expectancy has crept up. So you're now only likely to die seven years younger than the city. And we used to be 12 when I first got there. So the statistics were, if you lived in Devonport, you would die 12 years younger than other parts of the city. Now it's just seven. Housing has improved, because basically the Royal Navy left and they basically allowed some housing stock to be rebuilt, so there's, there's some, some nice new houses in Devonport. You no longer get the five o'clock fire alarm that people used to tell me about, whereby they'd phone the, poli- the police or the fire engine, the fire engine would come in and the kids would stone it. And we're meeting in the building we used to meet in. There's a long story, but we've we've had to go back to the building we used to meet in. When we we used to meet there, when Nathan was the minister, uh, there used to be kids running on the roof, and there would be one kid who would regularly weave through the letterbox. My wife told me not to tell that story, but I thought it was important. Because that's what people have told me. That's the story. Things have got better, but we still have some difficult things. I've seen people die in my road. Literally one... One time I walked out my door and there was a guy having a heart attack opposite our house. Uh, I've seen more arrests than I can possibly imagine. The best one, I think, the best arrest was 7am in the morning when a naked man was bundled by three policemen. Uh, I don't know why he was naked or why at 7 in the the morning he was doing being arrested. But it was quite funny watching him being arrested. I had to hide my daughter's eyes. It was a bit weird. Um, I saw the grandson of one of my church members beaten up in the road by a drug bloke. Um... You see these things. This is kind of fairly normal, normalized sites. We have, you know, so basically when I wrote this, I wrote that we, our food clubs feed 180 families. Actually, I looked at the list this week. We, we have a food club which, so we run a food club with the local Anglican, and we actually don't feed 180 families. I got it wrong, it's 200, it went to 200 this week. We don't get them every week. We get about 25 to 30 most weeks families. So, but we've still got 200 families on our list needing foods. And do you know the crazy thing is that when I look around, at least four or five of those families are church families. They're actually so. Remember, remember, once I invited um, Cap Christians Against Poverty to come. And I said, look, really clear, look, Christians in poverty. You know, most of my church are going to be people you're going to help. And when they turned up, they did a speech, and they kind of did this thing, and they basically said, come and give us money. I was like, no, you put this wrong. We, we actually need your help. These are, these are the poverty people in my church. These are the people that need your help. The job club was for many years the busiest in the city because we had such high levels of unemployment. And yet, do you know how many churches there are? 5,000 people. How many churches do you think we've got in our area? We've got two we got an Anglican church, and if they're lucky, on their Thursday morning service, if they get 12, it's a good week. And our church regularly gets between 25 and 30 on a Sunday morning. So, you know, someone said to me, oh, you know, you know poverty is you know, really bad, you know, but, you know spiritual poverty is worse. But what about when you get spiritual and economic poverty at the same time? So that's what we see. We see spiritual and economic poverty in our community, everywhere I go. Uh, but we do get, there are signs of life. We do get, we have, we're have we working together with local Anglican Church. We have to do things in partnership with our local Anglican Church, because because we, we need each other. So it's great, we have a messy church we run together. We run the food club together. We run a, a, tomorrow, a tomorrow they'll be running Feast of Fun, which is a celebration where you know, kids, particularly who don't have food for the holidays, can have a, a meal uh, and a celebration together. We'll do that together. We had our second baptism this year. I think there are signs of life. And thanks to the end of the pension crisis, for the first time in 11 years, I'm not on redundancy notice. Because when, as soon as I arrived, basically they said, we don't have any money, so we're actually going to have to make you redundant, which is crazy. But they just, the problem is they didn't just quite have enough money. So we didn't have enough money, yeah, the six months you need like salary, you need in, in, like, just in case. We didn't quite have that. So basically, I spent 10 years, basically, with just we'd have a chat as a church and say, do you want to make it redundant this year? Yeah, okay, we'll think about it. And so we had to have that conversation, a quite difficult conversation every year with the church leadership. Are you going to make me redundant? Will we have enough money? But we are a church that celebrates together. Um, so we have three values. We, we, I, kept the, I kept it to three values because I didn't want to overcomplicate it. And um, just three words, generosity, hosti- hospitality, joy. What's amazing is most of, my, most of my deacons can't name the three values. But anyway, hospitality, generosity, joy is our values. And so we celebrate with each other. We, we live generously with each other. We try to be generous to those around us. And we're generous with our, our stuff and our words and our, our, and our welcome. We're hospitable. We try to eat together at least twice a, twice a month. Both having a cafe style service, but also having a meal together. So we do. We We had a pasty Sunday last week. It was great. So we all get local pasties. Um, supplies pasties. A pasty Sunday. We got a, a slow cooker Sunday this month. We have a breakfast at a local cafe together. So we're trying to eat together. Hospitality, both in terms of hospitality we, we give, but also we receive hospitality. Because actually, because we don't have a building, so we are in a community centre. We are receivers of hospitality. Because we don't have a building, our toddler group meets in a local cafe. Because we don't have a building, we do all of our stuff in other people's spaces, which gives us a great opportunity for mission conversation. Actually actually not having a building frees us in some ways to be more hospitable and to be receivers of hospitality. We have a a local homeless uh, shelter in our area run by the Salvation Army. And for a couple of years, they they used to do a cooking course. The Why they, they they resolved some of the things they needed to do was they would provide us with a Christmas meal. You, know, you had homeless people feeding you. It was really weird. But actually, there was something about that that created a sense of awe because we were being, we were being receivers of hospitality. I we was constantly giving out. And also joy. So joy, we, we, we see joy in the context of being, you know, we, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. We do have a lot of broken people. But also within that we find spaces of joy and eating together is one of those joys. So that's what we do together. And that also brings into celebration and worship and coming together and enjoying each other's company. So that's a little bit about our church, about what we're about and about our area. Now, it's a little bit different from here. But it's yeah, you know, There are similar sort of stories. You know, we're a church that's a product of our history. A history of Decline. We've seen decline. We've seen the church become irrelevant to people very early because the church left. All the churches left. And so, while this is a story of a great king coming into his kingdom, you know, finding his city, bringing back the ark, you know, of ordinary people like Uzziah and Ahio, those nameless musicians and the skills and talents to worship God. You know, 3,000 years later, we're still trying to do the same thing, trying to find a way to worship God and to bring his kingdom in. A God who is moving among ordinary people like you and me. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it sometimes feels like it's only about the really important people. Actually, a lot of the Bible is about ordinary people. Doing ordinary things, leading ordinary lives, an ordinary Jewish man who suddenly finds himself you know, to be the Savior of the world. In some ways, he was just Jesus was just an ordinary man. He wasn't a king in the sense that yeah, he was from the line of David, but there was no nothing about him to declare him as that. He was born in circumstances that many questioned his birth. Read it and John, and they say, you know, we know who where you come from. We you know that you don't have that. So there's a lot of stuff about the ordinariness of life in the Bible. Ordinary people. You're an ordinary church in a city of London, but you're a group of ordinary people that come together to do what we've been doing for years, thousands of years, celebrating God, worshipping God. And we do the same. Our little corner of Devon, right on the coast of Devon. You can see Cornwall across the water. Plymouth is the city around us. Sometimes Devonport feels very different from Plymouth, And yet sometimes we feel very same. But we're very different from Devon, it feels like a very different space. Most people think of Devon when they go on holidays of the rural sort of loveliness, all the kind of country lanes, and you kind of end up in Devonport. It's completely different. Plymouth in many ways is a northern city
1: in, in
2: the heart of Devon. It functions in that same way as you get. In industrial north Manchester but it's important. and the problem with that is it tends to get forgotten about when, when money arrives it tends to miss us those different places the bible is a story of kings but it's also a story of ordinary people ordinary people like you coming to know god wanting to worship you, wanting to find ways of being part of that story of god in your situation here in london in this community amongst these people and I'm trying to do something very similar. Like implement into the people that God has come Let's pray. Well, Father, it's fantastic to read of these stories of histories of kings, amazing people. But remind us we're all part of that same story. We're all part of that same story. Even in this place, even so far separated from, from the Middle East and from, from Palestine, we are, but we're all part of the same story. Kingdom of God. I thank you and praise you for this church, for the ministry of Simon. Bless this place, bless the people here.
1: In your holy name. We come now with our prayers of intercessions. Let us pray. O oh God of peace and justice how unhappy and disappointed you must be when you see your people, your creation, warring against each other. Yet it keeps on happening in one place or another, over and over again. Why are we, your people, so perverse? Why do we so often behave like this not only at national and international level, but also within our families and local communities. Just now, we are overwhelmed with sorrow at what is happening in the Middle East, one side implacably ranged against the other, and with the ordinary people caught in between suffering so greatly and unable to do anything to prevent it from continuing. We pray for all who have lost family members and close friends in the indiscriminate killing that has been taking place. We pray for those who've lost their homes and possessions and who have been forced to take shelter in unsafe places. We pray for those who are desperate for water, food, medical treatment. We ask that you will comfort and strengthen them as they attempt to continue with their lives. Show us what we can do to support them in their need. And we pray for the leaders of each side. That they may want to seek a solution to their disagreements, to genuinely find a way to make peace with each other and to end this ongoing senseless violence. We pray too for the leaders of the major world powers that they will seek to influence and bring pressure upon those two sides not just to put sticking plaster over some of the more superficial wounds as seems to be happening at the moment, but truly seeking to find deep lasting ways to bring about peace. And we also think of other situations of violence in the world. In Ukraine, Afghanistan, Sudan, Myanmar, and we pray for similar outcomes in these places as well. And now we pray for ourselves and our church community, that we may also seek to live in peace with each other, remembering that we are all your children. Help us to treat each other dignity and honour. We pray all these things in the name of the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And before I leave this position, um, I just want to tell you that there is a prayer vigil this afternoon at St. James's Piccadilly at 3 o'clock. It's for an hour It's an ecumenical service, and uh, some of us from here are going. It's uh, organized by the major agencies, Christian Aid, AMOS, Embrace, URC, the Methodists, and us. Um, So if you'd like to go and don't want to go on your own, have a word with me afterwards.
2: Go into God's world with love hope, joy and faith in your hearts, and may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, be with
1: us all, today and forevermore. Amen.